This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 9th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today we're joined by David Hunter. David is the Richard Dahl Professor of Epidemiology and Medicine at Oxford University. He was previously Professor and Acting Dean at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. David's work has ranged from cancer where he studied gene-environment interactions contributing to the incidence of tumors to infectious disease, particularly HIV transmission. David is truly intercontinental. He was born in London, moved as a child to Sydney, where he attended medical school, and then to Boston for much of his career. He recently returned to his country of birth. And David is our longest-serving statistical editor here at the Journal. In much of the world, we're entering another lull in the rate of infection, This is particularly striking in places like South Africa, where rates of COVID-19 are now similar to those seen during the lowest periods in the past. In the United States and Europe, case rates continue to fall rapidly, although in some countries, such as South Korea, the peak of infection hasn't yet been hit. The most recent wave and the more recent decline coincide with the appearance and now the disappearance of the new variant, Omicron. There's a clear pattern. As a new, highly successful variant emerges, we see a rise in infections, followed by declining rates due to some mixture of increased immunity and preventive measures. For now, it's likely that rates will remain lower unless or until a new strain emerges. So today, let's talk about the latest strain that's having some success in causing an increased number of infections. Lindsay, what's different about this strain, known as BA2? So Steve, I think it's important, as you point out, for us to appreciate our rapid understanding of genomics and then our inference about the immune response. What I mean by that is we can understand the success of a variant by how it amplifies and transmits in the presence of immunity from the previous variants. In fact, this defines what a new variant of concern really is. And Omicron, which has emerged in the background of immunity from the ancestral strain, the alpha, beta, delta, and then has transmitted broadly, actually lives in a bit of a different immunologic space than the previous variants. And what I mean by that is the immune responses are more divergent associated with Omicron than with the prior variants. This is important as we think about variants emerging, because will variants emerge in a stepwise fashion from the previous variant, meaning delta leading to delta prime to delta double prime? Or will there be a bigger jump, such as we saw with Omicron, and then the next variants of concern be descendants of Omicron or be a brand new variant that we haven't seen before? There is concern that Omicron will lead to greater transmission, as we've seen, because it is more divergent than the historical strains. When we think about the Omicron variant, there are actually a variety of subvariants, BA1, 1 1.1, 2.0, 3.0, with BA2.0 emerging as an important variant that seems to be able to transmit in the background of BA1 suggesting that it's divergent enough that it may be able to be successful in that context. This will have important considerations as we think about treatments such as monoclonal antibodies and how the spike protein has changed in key ways that can then escape 
neutralization from different monoclonals. And as we are learning more about how monoclonals neutralize the variants, it may not be a linear progression where subsequent monoclonals are better than previous, but rather a mixing and matching where we know which monoclonals will be active against which variants because we understand the spike mutations and therefore the neutralizing ability. One of the concerns with new variants is how well the tools that we have will continue to work. In fact, we've already seen that strains have evolved in a way that can undercut the usefulness of existing therapies. For example, we've seen resistance to neutralization by therapeutic monoclonal antibodies develop in some SARS-CoV-2 strains, but we'd hope that this would be less true for the monoclonal sotrovimab. What makes this antibody different? Most of the monoclonal antibodies we've been using to prevent or treat disease have been designed to bind to the receptor binding portion of the molecule of the spike protein of the virus. This is a kind of a double-edged sword because it can be very important to bind there and prevent entry of the virus. But at the same time, that part of the molecule is the same part that most natural immune responses are directed against. And therefore, the virus is under selection to escape from those natural immune responses, and many of the mutations cluster in that receptor binding portion. Citrovimab was designed to bind to an epitope that is really within the receptor binding domain, but it's a region that's broadly conserved among all of the related viruses, including SARS-CoV-1, the cause of the original SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. And so the hope was there would be less selective pressure on this area of the protein. So Eric, I think you raised an important point, which is the virus is evolving to more efficiently transmit. That includes elements in the RBD, the receptor binding domain that enhances its ability to transmit bind cells infectivity, as well as elements that can avoid immune responses. So there are different ways that a virus can enhance its virulence. And designing the monoclonals like citrovimab that may be less susceptible to changes in certain parts of the RBD is theoretically attractive. And then we're left with the experiments in the wild or with use to see how the virus responds and which aspects of the virus are more or less forgiving for evolutionary change. Remember that resistance to monoclonal antibodies comes about in a somewhat different way than drug resistance. Generally, drug resistance arises because of selection by the drug, which is being used oftentimes widely in the population. Whereas monoclonal antibodies are never going to be used in a huge chunk of the population, and most of the selection occurs because of natural immune responses rather than the monoclonals themselves. That's likely to be the case, at least for now, And the hope was that by designing specialized antibodies like this, where selection had not yet yielded mutants in that region, in the epitope that the antibody binds to, that there would be less evolution. Today, we published a study that suggests that the virus can evolve changes in the citrovimab binding epitope. So what did these investigators find? This study comes from a group in Australia that studied 100 patients who were treated with citrovimab at a single institution in Sydney. From among these, they chose eight who had persistent viral loads after treatment. 
all of the patients were immunocompromised for a variety of reasons, including transplant recipients, some having primary hematologic disorders or having renal failure on hemodialysis. So they were expected to have poor immune responses to viral infection without additional therapy. When the investigators sequenced the viral genomes, they found that four out of the eight patients had required mutations in the spike protein within the citrovimab binding epitope. In individual patients who had sustained viral shedding, the frequency of these resistance mutations increased over time, and in a couple of patients became the sole detectable strain. I just want to be careful with definitions here. We often use the term strain and variant as synonyms. Here I'm using strain to describe something that appeared in a single patient during evolution, as opposed to a variant that's causing pandemic spread. We've already seen viral evolution occurring within people who weren't able to mount adequate immune responses. This is a slightly different case as it shows evolution that's likely occurring because of this exogenous immune therapy. In any case, it's clear that a treatment that we hoped would be mutation proof isn't. However, we don't have a good idea yet of how often this can happen or whether these mutant viruses can be efficiently transmitted to others. So Eric, as you point out, this experience is quite informative. And I think we need to remember what we want monoclonal antibodies to do and what the challenges or the stress on this therapy is. In many of the studies that looked at early treatment to prevent progression, where a variety of monoclonals were looked at and shown to be efficacious, the monoclonals are being used in a way to sort of give the immune system a head start while an immune response is occurring And one has a polyfunctional response, not only from the immunity, but also from the exogenously given monoclonal. In patients with a weakened immune system, we're relying much more on the drug or the therapy to do the heavy lifting. And as we see in this case from our Australian colleagues, that in this context where patients with a weakened immune system receive this type of therapy, we see a fairly high rate of emergence of what looks like resistant virus. Now, whether or not it's transmissible to others, we don't know, as you point out, Eric. But it does show the value of therapy in combination with one's normal immune response. We've also learned in other settings, such as when we treat our patients with HIV, how monotherapy makes it easier for a virus to develop resistance And in settings where the treatment is really the workhorse in clearing the virus, do we need to use combination therapy to minimize that risk? These data don't answer these questions, but they're consistent with our understanding of how pathogens behave and host responses are really important in clearing infections. Your point about combination therapy is really well taken with monoclonal antibodies. In fact, some of the agents that have been used are combinations of antibodies with different specificities, in part to ensure that there'll be some neutralizing activity from at least one of those antibodies. But what you're talking about is avoiding the development of resistance, which requires more than one active agent, not just one active agent. And I think that that principle applies equally to antibodies as it does to drugs. And hopefully in the future, we can have enough agents that are still effective that we can combine them in sensible ways. We started today talking about the appearance of the BA2 strain. And the study we just discussed makes it clear that new strains can have resistance to the antiviral agents that we're currently using. 
In fact, we published a second study today that looked at the effectiveness of current antivirals against BA2. So what did we learn here? This study comes from a group in Tokyo that has been systematically testing each major variant for susceptibility to antiviral agents. They use live virus for the testing, which is pretty much the gold standard assay. In this work, they compared the ability of each agent to block the growth of either the original strain isolated from a patient in Wuhan, China, or a BA2 isolate. All the work was done in vitro, so this is only a suggestion of what might happen in vivo. In prior work, this group had found that several monoclonal antibodies lost their ability to neutralize the Omicron variant. Here, they found that again. Some monoclonal antibodies had no detectable ability to inhibit viral replication, while others remained active, including some of those that had lost some of their activity against Omicron. Strikingly, though, citrovimab had about a 50-fold increase in the amount of antibody required for neutralization, a pretty substantial drop in activity. Fortunately, the three available small molecule drugs, remdesivir, nermatrovir, and molnupiravir, retained roughly equivalent activity against the two viral variants. I think the news here is mixed. With increasing levels of immunity in populations, we're seeing evolutionary pressure on the parts of the virus that bind to antibody. This means that we're likely to see continuing evolution of the spike protein. However, given that the small molecules have not yet been widely used, we're not seeing any fixed drug resistance. Of course, there's no reason that it won't appear. So once again, we need to be careful about how we use the small molecules and in fact, all of our antiviral agents. So Eric, I think this work sort of raises a very important principle that we as a community are going to struggle with. How do we use in vitro data to predict likely clinical utility? And we all have experience with this when we think about antibiograms for bacteria and choose antibiotic A versus antibiotic B based upon the susceptibility in the lab. And that's something we've had decades of experience with. All of our hospitals perform these studies and we clinically utilize these data. How will this type of thinking translate to in vitro neutralization of viruses, particularly novel viruses, like the next strain that emerges tomorrow? And if we wait for clinical data, that will be many months hence. If we use in vitro data, we have to understand the likelihood of it correctly identifying the correct treatment. And that's something that I think makes sense, but we're going to have to watch the evolution of these data and how accurate they are very carefully. But it's hard to imagine a monoclonal that has no neutralization activity against a virus to likely be active against it in the in vitro setting. And the converse, a monoclonal that is highly active in neutralizing a virus is likely to be active clinically, but those are suppositions and we'll have to generate lines of data to support or refute them so we know what truth is. It does seem likely that in vitro measurements can predict drug failure. They're not always as good about predicting success of an agent. That being said, there is an interesting observation, which is that none of the antivirals that we've seen have a profound effect on viral loads as measured in nasal swabs. So the in vitro activity correlates with clinical outcomes, 
but not so much with an antiviral effect seen in patients. Why that discrepancy exists, we don't know. And of course, what we care about are the clinical outcomes rather than quantitative measures of virus. Yet it remains a bit puzzling as to why we don't see stronger direct antiviral effects in people. Points well taken, Eric, that we'd like to see an in vivo correlate, such as an HIV viral load, is very predictive of effectiveness of treating patients infected with HIV. Whether or not the nasal compartment or the respiratory compartment is as reliable in our detection modalities or in the biology of the viral infection is what I think you're alluding to, and that does need to be sorted out. However, I think the clinical question before us will be variant X emerges, in vitro susceptibilities are blank. How do we then take the in vitro susceptibilities, which we'll have within a week or two, and apply it to our clinical decision-making when clinical data by definition will not exist for months? And I think that will be a very challenging arena for us to make our clinical choices now that we have many monoclonals, some of which are active against some variants and not against other variants, at least in the in vitro setting. And we will have to watch closely how we decide which monoclonals are useful given the kinetic delays in definitive data. Let's turn back to the vaccines that have been our major tools for combating COVID-19. In the United States and Europe, we've become accustomed to wide availability of the vaccines, but a year and a half after their introduction, they still remain unavailable in much of the world. David, before we talk about how things should work, what went wrong to bring us to this situation? Well, I think it's important to acknowledge what has gone right. So there's about 7.8 billion people in the world. And as of today, about 11 billion doses of a vaccine that didn't exist two years ago have been administered. And so it really has been a spectacular scientific triumph to generate these vaccines in such short order. It's never been done before. Estimates for how long it takes to develop a vaccine, you know, up to 8, 10, 12 years, uh, according to past practices. And so this has really been quite miraculous. But what you're referring to is that there's just intense inequity in the worldwide distribution of these vaccines, that those of us who are privileged to live in affluent countries have had ready availability, whereas in poorer countries, uh, the estimate now is only about 14% of people who live in poorer countries have even received one dose. And of course, our healthcare colleagues who are exposed, many of whom have died, initially many of them in developed countries, but after vaccines, that's uncommon. But our healthcare colleagues are still having to go to the clinic and being exposed to COVID without the cover of, in many cases, even a single dose. So that's the problem. That's the inequity. And it's emerged mainly because there was a bidding war. Uh, developed countries went after the vaccines almost at any price. Now we're going after boosters and maybe in fourth doses. And so inevitably that deprives countries that haven't got that sort of economic purchasing power of the ability to vaccinate even their healthcare workers, far less their general population. In many countries, some vaccines, particularly those manufactured in China and Russia, have been more broadly available. Why is this? 
So it's all a matter of the pre-existing capacity to make and scale up vaccine production. So India was fortunate to have several companies that were in this business. The most well-known is the Serum Institute of India, and they were able to scale up using the slightly more older-style non-mRNA-based vaccines, notably the so-called Oxford vaccine. They were able to scale up manufacture quite quickly because they have been for many years now a major provider of vaccines for less developed countries, vaccines at lower costs. Unfortunately, in the northern spring of last year, when COVID really hit in India, the Indian government took the decision to prevent those vaccines from being exported. So a lot of the countries that had been expecting to receive vaccines from India and the COVAX mechanism, which was the collaboration that WHO put together to help get vaccines to low-income countries, they were expecting a lot of their production to come from India, and India had to take the decision to focus on their own population first, which they have successfully done. They've also got a couple of locally developed vaccines In China, again, you know, they have the capacity to produce large amounts of vaccine, again, not using the latest mRNA technology, but using killed virus technologies and other technologies increasingly. And so they could scale up and they have provided quite a lot of vaccine to other countries. But of course, they also had to focus on their own populations. These are the two biggest countries in the world, India and China. So essentially in vaccinating their own populations, they weren't able to provide much vaccine initially for the rest of the world. There are two time horizons here, what happens now and what we do for the next pandemic. Let's start with the short term. How can we most rapidly get the highest efficacy vaccines to the parts of the world where vaccination rates continue to be low? So that's a complex question. It's basically a matter of supply and demand. And the good news is that there is increasing availability of the current vaccines through a number of mechanisms, but it will still take much longer than we would hope to get the vaccines equitably distributed to low-income countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. But the COVAX mechanism now has traction on purchasing. And WHO is developing, but this will take at least a year, realistically, vaccine hubs Um, They had previously done this for influenza vaccine preparedness, and they've announced in six sub-Saharan African countries they'll be developing vaccine hubs, which will be focused on the mRNA technology. So they're coming, but they're not coming fast enough, and the poorer countries are still worried that many of the manufacturers are really still focused on the markets they can sell at the highest price particularly for now boosters and potentially boosters on boosters. So even for the short term, medium term, this is unfortunately going to take longer than it should. For the longer term, exactly as you pointed out, we need to be ready for the next pandemic. Um, It's possible that we can repeat the miracle of producing these vaccines in short order. And in fact, I'd point your attention to a perspective that's just out in the New England Journal from Richard Hatchett, and the people at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, where they think that using the new technologies, it's possible maybe to go from a radically new strain or a new pathogen altogether to a vaccine in as little as 100 days. There's no guarantee those vaccines will work as well as the COVID vaccines, but they think the timeframe can be compressed. But the way the vaccines get to lower income countries is almost certainly going to have to be 
developing the production capacity locally so we can scale all over the world rather than scaling for developed countries first and the low-income countries just get the leftovers or get what the developed countries will be able to manufacture after they've fixed their own problems. So we really need to build vaccine preparedness and vaccine production into many, many more countries in the world so local resources can be directed to local needs. David, I want to step back a bit to the short-term issue of not having enough vaccine. And I realize this is a bit of a departure, but if you're a country which is starting to get vaccine, what have we learned about the priorities of distribution from what's gone on in other countries? You mentioned at the top, healthcare workers not being vaccinated who are caring for patients. Is that where vaccine should go first? Essentially, these countries get to learn from earlier experiments. They do. Um, and one of the problems is that the delivery mechanisms for vaccine in many less developed countries are really focused on children, infants. And so vaccines for adults have not been part of the mainstream healthcare delivery systems and have to be developed. So countries really have to think as the vaccines do start to arrive, what their priorities are. And many countries would probably be encouraged to vaccinate their healthcare workers and older people first, just as we did in more affluent countries. But these are decisions that each country will have to make for themselves. And they do run into the problem that if you don't have a well-developed primary care system or national health system, it can be quite difficult to access these populations that aren't in regular touch with any aspect of healthcare in the poorest countries. So each country will have to devise its own strategies, learning from what we've learned elsewhere, but not necessarily being able to absolutely emulate it. So David, you commented on, you know, that we're looking at how to deploy boosters on boosters in some communities. I think that also raises the issue of how we prioritize vaccination, not just in terms of healthcare workers or those who are on the front lines, but also how we think about the benefit of vaccines in terms of the absolute benefit of a primary immunization series versus a booster, which may have benefit, but may not be quite as substantial as a primary immunization series. In a world where we don't have an excess of vaccination yet, how do we weigh the potential benefits and therefore prioritize allocation to go that last mile to get it to those who would benefit the most? So I'm afraid we don't have a system that can look worldwide in terms of global health governance and really make those decisions. Countries make their own decisions. Their politicians are elected by their electorates and they will always prioritize their own populations first. And so as we publish evidence that vaccine efficacy wanes over time, that boosters are highly desirable and potentially boosters on boosters, this will continue to be a major source of vaccine demand, which will inhibit anybody's ability to get people their first dose or second dose in less developed countries. That's just the sort of political economy. How we fix this for the next pandemic, again, I would argue a lot of it has to do with building in local capacity for production, not necessarily vaccine development and origination, but production. And 
that's where I think there's a new appreciation of the fact that we need these vaccine hubs. They need to be well supported. Pandemics hopefully don't come around too often, but they need to be ready to go. The big question, though, is what vaccines will they be legally allowed to make? And here we run into the problem that the mRNA vaccines developed in affluent countries, developed with major taxpayer support over many decades of investment in basic science, and in some cases, direct taxpayer support to get the phase three studies done and get the vaccine manufacture scaled up. Those companies are still, and again, not surprisingly, protecting their intellectual property. They want to do this because they see an ongoing market for COVID, but they also want to do this because of the potential generalizability of that mRNA technology to a wide variety of other infectious agents and even cancers. So we do have a problem that the technology that appears to be most rapidly adaptable is going to continue to be unavailable to many countries because of the intellectual property issues. And even though WHO and you know President Biden and many others proposed that on an emergency basis that IP be waived and shared, that hasn't happened in a big way yet. So I think there does need to be more political pressure to address that source of inequity particularly since we don't know what type of vaccine, what type of manufacturing approach will be optimal for, let's say, God forbid, if a COVID variant comes along that's much more pathogenic, or the next pandemic, which may be a completely different virus. We're going to be back in the same place if a small number of Western companies you know, have corralled that intellectual property in a way that these vaccine hubs cannot access it. And so they can only access older ways of developing vaccines and older ways of scaling up production. You make a very good point in that some of these technologies, particularly mRNA technologies, were being developed by companies primarily aimed at cancer, primarily because you can make a lot of money in cancer that you can't make an infectious disease, honestly. But there is a fundamental difference between cancer, a non-infectious disease, from a pandemic disease like COVID-19. And I guess the question is whether you can harness the self-interest of governments by pointing out that these diseases actually spread and that what goes on in other countries really matters to what happens in your country. So I think that's a very powerful argument. Of course, if our late colleague Paul Farmer were here, uh, you know, he would dispute the idea that chronic diseases are different and make this argument that self-interest should rule as opposed to global equity interest. But I think this argument, you know, the way it's put is that the pandemic is not over everywhere as long as it's still in place anywhere. And that's because the, the potential for new strains to emerge in countries where there's a lot of transmission. And so it's in everybody's self-interest to try and uh, We're not going to eradicate this. It'll probably be a long time before we eliminate it, but it's in everyone's self-interest to at least suppress it to the lowest possible levels. I think that argument's a good one. It's an argument we should absolutely make. There's a little bit of a weakness that, you know, some of these strains may emerge in developed countries, in people who are immunocompromised, and we've published an example of that in our pages. So there's no guarantee that the next strain will emerge from a high transmission area. It may emerge from somewhere else. But that's also part of the equity argument that the more people are vaccinated, you know, as we've discovered with Omicron, the less the impact is and the sooner people can get back to normal. And the World Bank and others, you know, have very robust data to show that even small investments in vaccinating people in 
less developed countries pay for themselves multiple, multiple times over in terms of the resumption of international trade and travel. So, you know, I think we've got to make all arguments we can. And the continuing possibility that the existence of high transmission areas with low vaccination rates exposes the rest of the world to the emergence of a new variant is definitely one of the arguments that needs to be made on a global health security basis that you would think would have some influence in the corridors of power in more affluent countries. I still don't see that really paying off. I think a lot of our politicians think, well, if they've solved the problem locally, that's their job. And so we've also got to make the equity argument in addition that this is also about saving lives. And even a single vaccination conveys some protection, a vaccination for the large number of people who've already been exposed and have some natural immunity essentially probably functions as a booster. The big question is if we're going to need these vaccine top-ups every six to 12 months, you know, how do we scale that even once we've got a larger proportion of people in less developed countries with a primary course? This week, Moderna announced that it was easing restrictions on the use of its technology and that it would not enforce patent rights in 92 low and middle income countries. Is this change enough? I think the quick answer is we don't know yet. So any movement in that direction should be applauded. I know scientists, particularly in Africa, have some concerns that if the solution to this is to set up, let's say, Moderna manufacturing in African countries, the decisions about what vaccine to make and how much of it and when to make it will still be taken in boardrooms in Boston, and that won't guarantee equity. And the issue of enforcing or not enforcing patent rights on COVID-19, the devil can be in the details. Nobody wants to set up vaccine production facility on the assumption that IP won't be enforced if that decision could be changed or modified, or there are essentially loopholes that mean that the investment in the production facilities might not be able to be used in the future if a company like Moderna made a different decision. So I think it is complex. It's legally complex. It's a movement in the right direction. The best possibility would be that essentially, as has been done in other areas for health, because an emergency has been declared, the IP is widely shared. And, you know, there is an argument that Moderna has made a lot of money in the last 12 months, that Pfizer's made even more money. And, you know, maybe they should be thinking about what's good for the future of the world. Although, you know, as business executives, they're obliged to think about what's best for their shareholders and their company. But there is that argument that there has been a lot of money made out of the last year of vaccine. Couldn't we do a little better going forward? David, thank you very much for being with us today. And Eric and Lindsay, thank you as always.